0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I am your one and only full-time permanent host, Eric Trexler. Today I'm joined by a very special but extremely temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for taking the risk of having me on.
0: How's your morning going?
1: Uh, it's going well. Um, let's see. Friendsgiving is this afternoon. It is. So... Uh, you know cooking last night cooking this morning i like cooking so uh yeah makes makes for a good morning
0: it's a bold choice trying to record this in the morning we'll see how it goes Uh,
1: i mean it's not technically the morning but it's it's the morning for me close enough how is uh how's the start to your day
0: going uh good did a bunch of stuff around the house uh did a bunch of work this morning feeling good feeling productive um, so before we get into the content for today's episode, we've got, uh, some big announcements. I think the biggest one is that we've got a huge sale coming up for mass, uh, monthly applications and strength sport. That's our monthly research review, uh, mass. If you're not familiar, it's 10 pieces of content per month, but starting this upcoming issue, we've got an enormous change that we're really stoked about. Uh, so Greg, you've been doing a, a Piece of content in mass called research briefs mm-hmm. and it's where rather than doing a full in-depth longer article it's more concise summaries of several studies with a real emphasis on practical application mm-hmm. and so we have expanded the research briefs segment of mass and so that effectively doubles our study coverage if you look at the first issues of mass and you compare it to now Ah, uh, it's the same amount of total content, but we've basically doubled the number of studies we cover mm-hmm. on a monthly basis. So it's uh, a pretty huge upgrade that we're pretty excited about, um, and that is going to coincide with our big uh, Black Friday sale, which is our biggest uh, biggest sale of the year. So these are the lowest prices that you're that you're going to see for mass during our Black Friday sale. It uh, By the way, since it's a subscription product, we should clarify, when you subscribe at the sale price, you're locked into that sale price for the life of your subscription. You could do monthly, annual, or lifetime subscriptions. If you're not sure, if you're ready to subscribe to Mass, you can check out a free issue, which I will link in the notes of this show. And uh, the sale, the dates are from November 22nd to November 29th. And I should, of course, point out this is a charity sale. So uh, if you do a monthly subscription during the sale period, 100% of your first month's payment will go to the charity that we chose. If you do an annual or lifetime subscription, $21 uh, will go to the charity. So very, very excited to uh, hopefully raise some money for a really good charity this month. Uh, Also, if you want to support the show, you could subscribe to Macro Factor or you could use the uh, the code SBS Pod when you check out at BulkSupplements.com. That was quite a sales pitch. And now we can move on with the Road to the Stage segment.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I, I made my notes for this last night when I was putting the outline together, but I need to scrap them entirely. Uh, my, wow. my notes last night were, uh, quote, Nothing too exciting energy expenditure has finally plateaued and gradual weight loss has restarted uh so you know that wouldn't be very very exciting um but this morning I was two thirty six point four, which is officially more than thirty pounds down since I started using macro factor nice and my previous low was like two thirty seven point something so like, ultimately, it's not that not that big of a difference. Uh, you know, human brain dealing with pounds in a base ten number system. So uh, around like 10 pound increment uh, achievement, I guess, uh, feels like a bigger deal. Ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's not really, but it feels good to me. So um, yeah, things, things were kind of plateaued for a little bit. Uh, weight was flat and my, uh, estimated energy expenditure had trended down like 500 calories a day over the span of a month. Um, and turns out that seems to be approximately correct. Now that I'm eating, uh, quite a bit less than I was approximately a month ago, weight loss has restarted, uh, and I have, uh, cleared that 30 pound milestone. So, um, Yeah. Feel, feel pretty good about things.
0: Nice. It's, I, I've seen a lot of users that are a little bit surprised when they have that reduction in energy expenditure or the opposite sometimes increases in energy expenditure, but it does go to show that, I mean, total daily energy expenditure is quite dynamic. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a static thing. I think sometimes we think once we get a good estimate for it, it's like, whew, glad that's over with. Now I know my energy expenditure, but yeah, it is dynamic and it'll change.
1: Yeah, like we'll we'll occasionally see threads that's just like, man, over the last month my estimated energy expenditure has gone up over 2 like it's gone up 200 calories over the last month. So, what have I done wrong in the app to lead it to misestimate my energy expenditure by 200 calories? And it's just like maybe it actually went up by 200 calories. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh very dynamic. And unfortunately mine is currently being dynamic in the direction that I would not like it to be. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And ultimately, like I said, on the last episode of the podcast, uh, it's good to know because traditionally I've gotten down to about this weight or slightly heavier than I currently am hit a wall, just kind of get frustrated and say, ah, fuck it. Who cares about cutting? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get strong again. Um, but you know, now actually being able to see the numbers and seeing like, oh, okay. Like I do actually need to pretty substantially cut calories at this point, uh, and being able to do so in a controlled way, instead of just saying like, well, you know, a, what seemed like a moderate level of calorie intake wasn't working. So let's just, you know, let's just go into like, uh, protein sparing modified fast. Like, you know i i didn't have to resort to extreme measures so you know ultimately i'm slightly annoyed with my body about all of this but uh overall in the grand scheme of things uh I, i'd say it's going pretty well
0: yeah like you said it's good to know i think one of the most demotivating factors when it comes to weight loss in many cases is just doubt and uncertainty so mm-hmm. it, it is nice to see a number to see a graph. Even if it's giving you information that you're not exactly thrilled about, Mm -hmm. it's better to have the information than not have it. Yeah. Um, All right. Moving on. Uh, The road to enlightenment is pivoting um, for two reasons. It is now the road to Athens, which is a tremendously exciting announcement. So the road to enlightenment uh, is ending for two reasons. First of all,
1: that person in the Facebook group finally convinced you that it was just cultural appropriation.
0: Not quite, but (laughs) (laughs) so. (laughs) In my defense, since I rolled out this segment, I fully acknowledge I have no idea where it's going or what to do with it. I think it has reached its only logical conclusion, which is me being asked to actually say substantive things about secular Buddhism that I'm fully unqualified to talk about. Uh, For once, I do accept responsibility for that. (laughs) I don't know how else this could have played out. Uh, And yeah, it's time to move on. Plus... I'd, I'd say that's an
1: important stepping stone on your road to enlightenment.
0: Yeah. The second reason that I'm pivoting from the road to enlightenment, I'm still doing, I'm still engaged with this endeavor in my life. I'm just not talking about it anymore unless someone asks me. But uh, another thing to keep in mind is a lot of folks are saying that I did, in fact, already reach enlightenment. So, as, as we talked about uh, by the lake, I either passed out or became enlightened. There's a lot of debate. I'll let the scholars kind of sort that out over the next few hundred years. But for now, I'm transitioning and I'm getting on to the road to Athens. And the uh, the reason it's the road to Athens, the first ever marathon was, as the story goes, from marathon to Athens. Uh, apparently, people debate exactly how long a marathon should be. Uh, I was reading an article about it. But the modern interpretation is 26.2 miles. And I think I do have my set, my sights set on the goal of running a marathon in the relatively near future. I'm thinking possibly late spring if I can swing it. Um, I will admit that I cheated. I got back into running before I you know, have made this announcement. Uh, so the reason I cheated is I have failed so many times getting back into running, and I always fail at the earliest stage. Uh, and the reason I fail is because I get really, really into it and I usually have a lower extremity injury that will get me, you know, so I can't just ease into running. I just say, Hey, I like running. And then I run way too much. And usually it's my right plantar fascia. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's always either a foot or a knee that will get me because I just do too much too fast. I don't have the, I have all the motivation, all the focus and none of the discipline to to rein myself in. So, I am, and
1: you also, without running, just stay in weirdly good shape.
0: That that so that's a true thing. Is that uh, because
1: because like in this is on topic. Like when we were kind of in that weird phase business wise when you had graduated in December and I was still doing the last year of my masters. Um, you know, so like the stronger by science partnership wasn't like fully operational yet. Cause I was mostly just in the lab all the time. Uh, you were just like, Hey, I, I have all of this additional time on my hands. I'm going to get into running again. And I remember you saying like, "Ah, oh, man, I just started running again this week. I love it. Feels good. Uh, went for a 15 mile run three days ago, went for a 12 mile run yesterday, like, man, yeah, this is awesome. I love it. And so like one, I was thinking, like, that's ridiculous. Like, I would need to train for six months to be able to run 15 miles. Uh, so fuck this guy for being able to jump right into it. And the second thing I was thinking is, like, dude, going from, you know, say what you will about acute on chronic workload ratios, yeah. there's there's some debate about how predictive of injury risk that is, but if that idea holds any merit at all, the acute to chronic workload ratio of zero miles per week to whatever the fuck you were doing <laughs> i was just like I, I don't know it doesn't seem like a great idea to me but uh good luck dude and then, like the next week i asked you like how's your running doing and you're like man i have a really bad case of plantar fasciitis <laughs> yeah i was like dude that was that's completely out of the out of the blue who could have predicted it
0: right so so the problem <laughs> is like like you said um for whatever reason, I, I, do think that I'm, uh, naturally more inclined for endurance activity rather than strength or power activity. Um, and so the problem is I'll get back into running my cardiovascular system. You know, I, I'm, I can handle it. Like my, my cardio respiratory fitness is like ready to go, but my lower extremities are not ready to handle the pounding. Um, so this time around, I didn't really, you know, talk about getting back into running until I had gotten through that initial phase of getting my, mostly my feet able to handle the mileage that the rest of my body was ready for. Mm -hmm. Um, so this time getting back into it, I started it at a time when I was pretty busy, which is good because even when I wanted to go out for a ridiculous run, like dude, who's got the time, Mm -hmm. you know? So that was good. I also, uh, you know, did a little bit of cold water immersion. So, you know, you've covered that in mass before. And, uh, there are potential downsides of, you know, if you're regularly doing post-exercise cold water immersion, you could attenuate some of your training adaptations, you know, for me, mitochondrial biogenesis is the last thing on my mind when I'm getting into running for the reasons I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, those molecular level cardio, cardio respiratory adaptations to support endurance. I don't really need those yet. I will. But my biggest obstacle when I'm getting into it is, can I put in mileage and keep my feet and my knees feeling okay? So that's why I kind of made that trade off. And you know, my advice when you're getting into something like this is, when you're in that entry level stage, abandon optimal and focus more closely on what your specific obstacles or and challenges are. So if you know going into a dietary change or a training change or something like that, what your primary obstacle is, you should be tailoring your approach to what that is. So for me, mitochondrial adaptations, I'll take care of them later. The top priority was easing back into this and staying healthy, managing my acute recovery from session to session. So that would be my general advice that would apply to many different endeavors is don't worry about optimal right out of the gate focus on your biggest obstacle and that's been the thing that's been dictating my recovery practices and my mileages and my frequency of running is what can basically my right foot handle and so far so good I'm really stoked about it so uh this is a great transition for segments because I actually do feel comfortable talking about this, which is good. that's usually kind of a prerequisite for a podcast segment so, I do feel good about talking about this new endeavor into endurance sport. Uh, we're not going to rename the company, you know, uh, what would be a different play on stronger by science? We're not shifting to a cardio focused company or podcast, but I am going to pepper a little bit of cardio content in there. Uh, can
1: can I just say something really quick about marathons before we move on? Sure. Cause I, I saw the snippet of the article you posted in, in the outline, uh, and got slightly upset like this is one of the many things that i'm that i'm somewhat annoyed about um when when people bring up a particular anecdote that i'm like oh no that's actually not right uh so anyway
0: well i didn't say it so i haven't I'm not accepting responsibility for this. You
1: didn't. I just want to share a fun fact with the audience about marathons. Okay. So this article you have in the outline starts with, uh, in a nod to Greek history, the first marathon commemorated the run of the soldier Pheidippides from a battlefield near the town of Marathon, Greece, to Athens in 490 BC. According to legend, Pheidippides ran the approximately 25 miles to announce the defeat of the Persians to some anxious Athenians. Not quite in mid-season shape, that's the thing I'm going to quibble with. He delivered the message Nike or victory and then keeled over and died. So that's that's like the story of the marathon that, uh, for whatever reason, has made it to the modern day. And actually, that version of the marathon story has had some interesting sociocultural effects. So, uh, like, that's one of the reasons that people think that... Um, in so I'm I'm going to sound like a shithead here. Oh, but, cool. But that's one of the reasons why I think people think that it's a huge accomplishment to even finish a marathon. And like, it's not that that's a small accomplishment, but I think people overstate how huge of a deal it is. And I think part of that. Mytho, you're you're going
0: to get destroyed for saying that.
1: Sure. I, <laughs> I'm sure I will. I mean, I've. Look, man. I've walked more than 25 miles in a day before.
0: Have you really? Yes.
1: Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, on a, a trip to New York City. Like, we were there with friends. We were seeing the sights. Man. And, uh, like, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't a perfectly precise estimate. But, like, the step counter at, at the end of the day pegged us at, like, 27 miles. No, I, I do get your I was, I, I was fucking dead at the end of the day. But, like.
0: I, I do get your point, And I have talked to people who have done marathons without training. Yeah. Yeah. So like that, that kind of supports yeah, so, your general idea there.
1: So people think that it's a huge, huge deal. Cause the idea is like, Oh, this guy ran about 25 miles and died at the end of it. Uh, and, and the other like sociocultural effect that I have in mind is like, this was one of the reasons why women weren't allowed to run marathons until like kind of recently, I think the seventies, um, Man, I, I'm blanking on her name, but there's a really good story about the first woman to run the Boston Marathon and yeah. how like the race organizers tried to actively grab her and pull her off of the course because the the thinking was like, man, a marathon is very grueling and the delicate female body simply can't handle this. Like if it could kill Pheidippides, it's definitely going to kill a woman like th- that. That was like part of the thinking there huh. but anyway so uh that would all be well and good if the full marathon story was Pheidippides, you know he's this messenger guy he's just kind of chilling at the battlefield and then when the victory is is won he runs back to athens tells people and dies like i i think that's kind of the the image people have in mind when they think the marathon story but that's not the full story within depending who you talk to Greek history or Greek mythology, like the, the battle definitely occurred, but how accurate the telling is like, who knows? But uh, anyway, the full Pheidippides story is the Persians were coming. They were supposed to land at Marathon and uh, the Athenians were just like, well, shit, we might be overmatched here. We need to see if the Spartans will be willing to help us out. So uh, Pheidippides was like the courier of the Athenian military I, I'm sure they had several but like he was I guess the best one so he ran from uh, Athens to Sparta which was I think like 70 75 miles I don't know Greek geography but like he ran a long ass way to Sparta Yeah, and said like hey guys can you help us out and if memory serves they said nah fuck you like we don't care Um, and so then He had to run from Sparta to Marathon um, to deliver the news to the army like, hey, we're going to have to do this ourselves. We can't rely on the Spartans to to come bail us out. Uh, So he ran from Athens to Sparta, from Sparta to Marathon. Then he fought the Battle of Marathon, which I assume was physically taxing. And then he ran about 25 miles back to Athens and then keeled over at the end of it. So like...
0: So, you're saying I should do an ultra marathon?
1: I'm saying my road to Athens. I'm saying you should run 75, 75, 25. You should run like 175 miles with like four to six hours of simulated combat in the middle. And then die. Well, I think that might occur. Okay. But, But anyway, so. Yeah, the the thing about Fidipides dying at the end of the whole process, if that is true, like if that is a true historical account and he died after delivering the message, it wasn't simply after running the marathon. It was after, you know, putting in like <laughs> close to 200 miles of running and fighting a battle.
0: Yeah, that's that's more than I'm ready for. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, I'll I'll be providing some updates on my marathon training, uh, but it's not going to become endurance by science or anything like that. It's still going to be a strength focus. And with that in mind, what's up with feats of strength?
1: Yeah, I've just got one this week. Um, partially because there aren't that many competitions going on currently and, uh, partially because I didn't feel like looking around all that much. Um, but the one I have is very cool. So, uh, I know I'm going to butcher this name. I assume it's Marek uh, Zych, Z-Y-C-H, set the new all-time world record deadlift in the 90-kilogram class or 198-pound class. He deadlifted 406 kilos or 895 pounds, so... You know, for for people dealing in freedom units, he's very close to deadlifting over 900 pounds at a sub 200 body weight, which is which is wild to me. Um, and also, you should go watch the video. It's one of the I, I think it's going to be a polarizing video. I love it. It's a yeah beautifully technically efficient sumo deadlift from a guy who's built for sumo deadlifts. Yeah, we're talking. Minimal range of motion, uh, pure economy of movement. Um, and I, I think that's incredible because to me, powerlifting is about moving a weight from A to B in whatever way the rules allow, which is exactly what he did. Uh, I think some, some sumo is cheating. People will use the video as like ammo for their argument, but honestly, I don't care. I think it's sick uh so congrats to him
0: yeah i saw that and uh it's as efficient as a deadlift could possibly be uh really really impressive stuff
1: him and uh, uh Nasinov, i think are are the two most efficient sumo deadlifters right now
0: oh one question i had for you on this uh particular uh segment yeah someone messaged me i guess have you heard that usapl is like going back to old weight classes
1: Yes. So someone
0: asked me what my opinion was on that. And of course I have none, but I'm pitching it to you.
1: Oh, I've I've got an opinion on this. Um so I'm not going to talk about all of the USAPL IPF drama. Um I think I think my opinion is somewhere in the middle. I I think if you had to say one or the other is in the right, like just a purely binary thing, I think the USAPL is more in the right than the IPF. But I also think their uh, messaging about why they got kicked out of the IPF is slightly dishonest. So anyway, I, I think if I shared my full thoughts on the matter, I'd just make people mad. So I, I'm going to forego that. Yeah. Um, but I am stoked about reverting to the old weight classes for a couple of reasons. One, I fucking hate the new weight classes. I think they're stupid. Um, like... I don't know, dude. We're, we're humans. Our brains like nice round numbers and even increments between things. And I felt like just some of the weight classes themselves and the jumps between weight classes, they felt kind of random. And also, I don't know, I didn't love the fact that the IPF and its affiliates went with one weight class system, which differed from their history and differed from every other powerlifting federation in the world. Like, you know, the old, the old weight classes weren't broke. Don't try to fix them. So that that was kind of my my boomer perspective when the new weight classes were rolled out several years ago. Uh, but reverting to the old weight classes, I like because I, I view it as a return to tradition. Um, and also, much more importantly, the thing I like about the new weight classes is they added back the uh, 140 kilo class for men and they added... Um, I know they added an 100-kilo class. I think they added a 110 class for women as well, Uh, and and I think that's pretty huge for a couple of reasons. One is um, there are... So with the old weight classes, for men it cut off at 120, and for women it cut off at 84, and there are a lot of people who are into powerlifting who are bigger than 120 or 264, who probably don't want to get up into the mid 300s to really be competitive in the super heavyweight class. Yeah. Uh and that was mm, <laughs> that was the case for women as well to a enormously larger degree. Yeah, like the,
0: the gap there like that that second highest weight class yeah. in in the female category was insane.
1: Like 84 kilos isn't that big for women? Um, I mean, like, that's what that's like slightly higher than the population average. So like, yeah, going from 84 kilos to super heavyweight,
0: it's a big jump.
1: I I thought that that was pretty fucked. So I think that adding the 140 class for men is a small improvement from kind of going from 120 to super heavy. And I think adding the 100 and 110 uh, kilo class for women I think that's huge. Like, I, I think that that, um, I, I think that that will meet the needs of a lot of people who, you know, didn't want to be sub 120 or sub 84, but, you know, didn't want to do what you got to do to be, (laughs) to be a top super heavyweight. Um, so yeah, I, I am fully supportive of the old slash new USAPL weight classes. Uh, the, the one The one, uh, kind of weight class jump that I've seen some people complaining about is with the reversion to the old weight classes. Now it jumps from 60 kilos to 67 and a half. And I think some people think that that's kind of a big jump and that maybe there should be one more intermediate weight class there. But I don't know. To to me, I think the, the pros outweigh the cons. Yeah. But cool. also, I'm never going to sniff 60 kilos, so yeah. uh, it's it's easy for me to say that it doesn't matter that much.
0: <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, I,
1: I, I think overall the positives outweigh the negatives.
0: Nice. All right, so I have a very brief tech support segment here. Uh, if you're new to the show, tech support is where we talk a little bit about our diet app called Macro Factor. Um, just kind of reminders uh in this particular tech support segment uh the base of users in macro factor is growing which is fantastic of course we sincerely appreciate all the support and uh our macro factor users by the way we do call them mfers and and that's uh a very simple uh abbreviation that couldn't possibly be misconstrued so thanks to all the mfers out there who are supporting us Uh, A couple things, just reminders to people who might be new to the app or who are thinking about checking it it out. Um, We've put a lot of content into Stronger by Science articles about the app, talking about how it was developed, the general concept, uh, kind of our philosophy behind the product. We've also put a ton of information, a ton of content into what we call the knowledge base. And the knowledge base, you can access it uh, you know, through your internet browser on your computer, um, or you can access it right in the app. There's little buttons you can hit to uh, to get some extra information. So, mo- you know, a lot of the uh, startup questions when you start using the app, if you check out the knowledge base, you'll not just get the answer, you know, not just the, you know, quick answer of how to do it, but also the thought process behind why the app functions the way it does. So if you're getting into the app, definitely encourage you to check out our articles and our knowledge-based content about the app. Um, now, we are obviously a very young company. The app, when, when did the app get launched? feels like two weeks ago, but it was probably like...
1: I think September 22nd.
0: Okay. Something like that. But uh, anyway, you know, it's it. we're a young company. It's a, a pretty new app. But we've already rolled out a lot of feature updates. And... Uh, you know, users already know that we massively expanded our food database, which has been huge for our users in the UK, Australia, Ireland, New Zealand. Um, it also seems to be bolstering our barcode support in other regions outside of those. Uh, but those are the regions that have gotten a huge uptick in terms of their barcode coverage. Um, and we do have more plans for the future when it comes to database expansion. Uh, but we've made a bunch of updates and, uh, you know, additional features in our short time in operation. But now the uh, the big piece of news, I guess, is that we have a public roadmap now. So users or, you know, people who are thinking about becoming users can not just check out the app with the free trial, but they can also look at where the app is headed in the future. So I will put the link for our public roadmap in the show notes here. But uh, it's a place where users can submit feature requests. It's also a place where you can vote on you know, which requests you find to be most helpful or most interesting. So it's an opportunity to kind of have some say on the future development roadmap for macro factors. So uh, it gives you an opportunity not just to keep an eye on our vision for the future, but to actually influence that potential trajectory. So Uh, If you're interested in the app or you're already a user, like I said, I'll put that link and you can check out the public roadmap.
1: And if you don't want to look at the show notes, the URL is feedback.macrofactorapp.com. And and just one note, if you check out the public roadmap, it's not uh, fully comprehensive for uh, all of the things people have suggested and certainly not comprehensive of all of the features we plan to deliver down the line think of it as kind of a short to medium term roadmap. Uh, I, I'm not going to put a distinct time number <laughs> on that. Um, but yeah, so we we have huge plans for features we want to roll out over a matter of years. But if you check out the roadmap, um, you know, th- those are things that are kind of actively in the research and development stage.
0: Absolutely. Okay, moving on. We've got a research review segment. Uh, Greg, you're going to be talking about cooling gloves. And this is something that we've been getting a lot of questions about. So I'm excited for you to cover this so that we can just link to it in the future.
1: Yeah, so I know exactly why we've been getting a lot of questions about about this. Um, Unless I'm horribly mistaken, it's due to Craig Heller's appearance on the Huberman Lab podcast. Um, which I'm not going to comment directly on, but I'm simply going to provide an overview of the cooling literature. So, um, you know, research looking into does intra-exercise cooling affect uh, performance? So let's dive into this. So for the areas of the research that are probably a little bit less relevant to podcasts or Stronger by Science podcast listeners, but the areas where there are the most research. Um, There was a systematic review and meta-analysis that came out, I believe, last year by Doozy and colleagues. Title was Cooling During Exercise Enhances Performances, But the Cooled Body Areas Matter, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And so what what, uh, this was looking at was all of the crossover studies that investigated the effects of um, pre-exercise, but mostly intra-exercise cooling protocols uh, on performance. And just based on the inclusion criteria they used, um, they didn't end up including any of the studies that existed on resistance training. So I'm going to talk about all of those separately. Um, But broadly, the studies were split two ways. One was studies looking at aerobic performance and the other was studies looking at anaerobic performance. So say like repeated sprint ability. Um, And cooling seemed to significantly improve aerobic performance with a uh, pretty hefty, moderate effect size Uh, pooled effect estimate uh, was a Cohen's D of about 0.6, which, you know, that's, that's a pretty notable effect. Um, Just to put that in context, the impact of caffeine on really basically every outcome is somewhere between an effect size of about 0.2 to 0.4. That's, that's for maximal strength, strength, endurance, power, aerobic performance. Caffeine seems to have a a small but positive effect on virtually everything. Um, So for aerobic performance, the effect size of intra, of intra exercise cooling seem to be about twice the effect size of caffeine. So, you know, notable, but not like a night and day difference.
0: And is that specifically hand cooling?
1: No, no, no. So that's uh, all of the cooling interventions they looked at. So, um, you know, like a neck wrap or uh, palm cooling or like a full body cooling suit or um, one of the things that seemed to be pretty effective was just drinking cold beverages because ultimately the, the thing that, when overheating becomes problematic for aerobic performance, the the thing that's really going to get you is when core temperature starts elevating. And so, if you just like drink a really cold beverage or like eat some crushed ice, that cools you centrally. Um, so that that seems to be fairly effective. Honestly, so back in the day, I remember uh, like coaches and athletic trainers saying that like you're supposed to drink like lukewarm or room temperature liquids because like if you drink cold liquid when you're really exerting yourself, it's going to like put you into shock or something or like divert blood to your intestines instead of your muscles. I don't think there's any evidence for that. I think that's a myth. But anyway,
0: these are the same people who told us that we couldn't possibly recover with our hands on our knees. Right? That is, that
1: is also true. Yeah. Anyway, uh so that's that seems to be fake. Just drinking cold stuff <laughs> seems seems to be good. Anyway, so yeah, for aerobic exercise a a moderate but uh, pretty noteworthy effect. For anaerobic exercise the effect size was still statistically significant, but quite a bit smaller. So pooled effect estimate of about 0.27, which is a positive effect, but it's worth noting that when they were looking at uh, kind of the study conditions or cooling protocols used, um, they found that the most effective was whole body cooling garments and that cooling only seemed to be effective for anaerobic performance when you were doing anaerobic stuff under hot conditions. So they operationally define that as greater than 28 degrees Celsius, which I think is somewhere in like the mid to high 80s. But I don't know. I'm relatively comfortable with most aspects of the metric system. I don't fucking know Celsius, though.
0: Fahrenheit to Celsius and vice versa is a nightmare.
1: Yeah, here's another hot take. I mostly like the metric system. I like, you know, centimeters and meters more than like feet and yards and certainly kilometers more than miles. Uh, I like, uh, grams and kilos more than ounces and pounds. Uh, I like, uh, milliliters and liters more than fucking tablespoons and cups and whatever else. Um, but I do think that outside of scientific purposes, I think Fahrenheit is better than Celsius. Like, yeah, I I understand, Like, oh, okay like you're you're anchoring it with zero being the freezing point and 100 being the boiling point. So those numbers are pegged to something meaningful when, you know, when you're doing experiments or something like that. But just for day to day use, I think the benefit of um, I think the benefit of Fahrenheit is just that like 10 degree increments kind of mean something like if. And I feel like that helps with communication. I suppose, like if someone were to say in Celsius, like ah, it's going to be in the thirties today. It's either going to be pretty hot or like the hottest day you've ever experienced. Yeah. Or if they say like ah, it's going to be in the in the tins, it could be pretty comfortable. Could be fairly cold. If you say in Fahrenheit, like ah, t- today's in the fifties. Doesn't matter if it's fifty one or fifty nine. Like it's it's the fifties. You know Same what I sweatshirt. Mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I also, I also think it's, I don't know. I I think it's good for, um, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to get off on that tangent. We're talking about body (laughs) cooling right now. Anyway, mostly like the metric system, but I, I'm a Fahrenheit ride or die
0: guy. yeah I was going to say, you you said before we started recording, like, Hey, let's make sure we keep this one really tight, you know, keep it on a short timeline here. And then you know, six minutes into talking about Fahrenheit versus Celsius. Uh, well,
1: you know what, man, I actually am well rested for once. <laughs> I have the appropriate amount of stimulants in my system. I didn't wake up five minutes before we started recording, so yeah. I, I'm fully prepared to be on my bullshit today. Yeah, um, well, m- much more loquacious than I typically would be.
0: Then I'll I'll, I'll take um I'll take on the task of reining you back in
1: no it, it's fine okay so let, let's get back on topic so that that's the meta-analysis uh notable moderate effect for aerobic performance smaller moderate effect for um or no th- that's a small effect so it was a small effect for anaerobic performance uh and those effects really only seem to show up when you're testing in pretty hot conditions okay so let's move on to the resistance training studies. Um, there's a study by Bacon and colleagues titled effect of two recovery methods on repeated closed handed and open handed weight assisted pull ups. Uh, and so this was a study in climbers where they were looking at pull up performance. Um, closed handed pull ups are what they sound like. Um, so, you know, you're just grabbing the pull up bar as one would grab a pull up bar. I think open handed pull ups was kind of like fingertip pull ups. Um Anyway, so they they had a cooling intervention. Uh, It was ice bags applied, I think, to the arms and shoulders between sets. And also this was just a weird study. Um, I think there were like 17 minutes between sets. But anyway, they found that uh, uh, between set cooling protocols improved open, open hand pull up performance, but not like normal pull up performance. So, you know, maybe a small positive effect there. Moving on, study by Galoza and colleagues: resistance exercise interset cooling strategy effect on performance and muscle damage. So in this study, they had uh, two uh, they had two groups uh, perform four sets of bicep curls at 80% of one RM. Uh, One group uh, had ice ice bags applied to their biceps between groups, and the other or between sets, and the other group didn't. And the cooling group, uh, was able to complete more reps across the four sets, about 21% more, uh, than the control group, though, uh, since this was a, you know, since it was an experimental study with two groups instead of a crossover study, it's hard to know if that effect was due to cooling per se, or just potentially differences between groups, um, then a study by Caruso, uh, intermittent palm cooling's impact on resistive exercise performance. In this study, they had subjects do four sets of eight, um, like, uh, yeah, leg press. So they had they did four sets of eight leg press with a flywheel device. So for that, you're not necessarily doing reps to failure. Because with a flywheel, you can you can just keep going. You'll just move slower and slower. So they were looking at decrements in power set to set. And in this study, there were two cooling conditions and one control condition. And uh, over the first three sets, uh, power output was comparable between groups. And the drop-off set to set was about the same between groups. But then for the fourth set, the two cooling groups maintained performance a little bit better. And there was a slightly larger drop-off for the control group. Um, so over three sets uh, between set cooling didn't seem to do much on the fourth set. Maybe it helped uh, with performance maintenance. And then finally, there were two studies by Kwan uh, and colleagues, and uh, these were the same study, but uh, one was done in males and one was done in females. In both of the studies, um, the training protocol or the, the testing protocol was four sets of bench press to failure at 85% of one RM. Uh, and they had three conditions. They had a control condition. They had a palm heating condition and they had a palm cooling condition. Um, and these studies I think used, uh, like a cooling glove type setup. So the, the temperatures they used, um, seemed comparable to the cooling glove that now people are talking about. Uh, And also it was a negative pressure thing. So that's one of the things that uh, is supposed to be special about the cooling glove. You put your hand in the glove, negative pressure, maybe that pulls more blood in uh, that you can then exchange temperature from helps with central central cooling a little bit better. Um, So anyway, it, it seemed to be the right type of device to, um, look at the effects of a cooling glove on performance. Uh, but yeah, there was a heating and a cooling condition here. And so in the study in males, the uh, the palm cooling condition subjects completed uh, significantly more volume than the control condition or the palm heating condition, although uh, subjects also performed non-significantly more reps in the palm heating condition than the control condition. And then in the study on females, the palm heating and palm cooling conditions outperformed the control condition with no difference between the heating and cooling conditions, which opens up the possibility that the impact, the the small positive impact that we're seeing in these resistance training studies could potentially be a placebo effect because If uh, if elevations in, say, core temperature or muscle temperature are negatively impacting the maintenance of performance across multiple sets, then, you know, cooling might be beneficial. And one would assume that heating would be detrimental. So if we're seeing uh, two studies where heating certainly isn't detrimental and in one of the studies, heating is just as ergogenic as cooling is. But the difference there is for the heating and cooling condition, you know, some temperature thing is being done to your hand versus the control condition where nothing is being done to your hand. That opens up the possibility that both of those effects could just be a placebo effect. Like the, the subjects recognize like an intervention is being done to me. Generally in research, you assume interventions are effective. Therefore, this must be a good thing. And, you know... Placebo effects stuff. So uh, anyway, looking at these five studies, you see generally positive effects, generally not particularly large, um, potentially all placebo, who's to say, but, you know, one one could make either an optimistic or a pessimistic case from these studies that I've discussed. Uh, then there is one more study Work volume and strength training responses to resistive exercise improve with periodic heat extraction from the palm, by Gran and colleagues. And one of those colleagues is Craig Heller, who was the senior author on this paper and was a uh, recent guest on the Huberman Lab podcast. So I will note, uh, in the interest of charity, that all of the studies I've discussed up to this point were looking at the impact of cooling interventions on acute performance. And this is the only one I'm aware of looking at the impact of cooling on longitudinal training outcomes. So it very well could be a situation where for reasons that haven't been discovered yet, uh, you know, maybe it only has a small effect acutely, but chronically uh, it, it does something to improve responsiveness to training that is a possibility uh but uh, i'll i'll get into this the, the results of this study uh kind of stick out like a sore thumb from the rest of the cooling literature so there were there were like five distinct studies talked about in this paper there were a couple of acute studies and uh, i think three longitudinal studies um and quite simply, I don't have time to talk about all of it. But I want to talk about. Uh, actually, there were four longitudinal studies. I want to talk about three of the four. Uh, so two of them were pull-up interventions, and one of them was a bench press intervention. So uh, the first pull-up intervention um, was on untrained subjects. Oh, a- actually, just just to note, uh, for all for all of these interventions, or for the two pull-up interventions. Uh, there were three minutes between sets for all sets uh, and all sets were performed to failure. And it's noted uh, people were doing uh, chin-ups or pull-ups, um, but they, they had to actually be real pull-ups. Like the chin had to get all the way above the bar. So um, when you're listening to these results, you can't just assume like, oh, maybe they were only doing half reps or... I mean, maybe they were, but according to the methods of the paper, they were doing real pull-ups, getting their chin above the bar every time.
0: Did they have a criteria for the bottom of the pull-up that they mentioned? Do you happen to remember?
1: Uh, if there was one, they didn't mention it. Okay.
0: So you'd have to um, anyway. Yeah, w- w- go on.
1: One would assume if if, if you were doing uh, rigorous research that you would try to make people go. Right pretty close to all the way down. Anyway, so uh, in the first pull-up study, uh, there were um, subjects with at least two years of prior resistance training experience, and they performed 10 sets of pull-ups per, per workout. Um, And uh, so they, they did pull-ups with palm cooling for six weeks and uh, they, they kind of split the group into two. So, Um, one half of the group did six weeks of palm cooling pull-ups followed by a couple weeks of pull-ups without palm cooling. And for the other half, it was the opposite approach. So they did uh, a period of pull-up training without palm cooling, followed by a period of pull-up training with palm cooling. Um, but kind of pooling that all together, uh, when, during the six weeks of palm cooling pull-up training, uh, subjects improved their total work volume across 10 sets by 144% on average over six weeks versus uh, 4% um, when they were doing the same uh, training protocol without palm cooling. And uh, it's worth noting the the kind of absolute improvements uh, during the palm cooling period um, for, for pull-ups across 10 sets. So when people began uh, the protocol, they were they could do 134 plus or minus 48 pull-ups across 10 sets. So average about 13 per set, and that that range was 70 to 153. Then after six weeks of uh, pull-ups with palm cooling, uh, they averaged 298 plus or minus 168 with a range from 70 to 616 reps. Uh, So their their average number across 10 sets increased from 13.4 to almost 30. And there was apparently one individual who completed 616 reps of pull-ups across 10 sets to failure with three minutes between sets. So that's that's all very interesting. Uh, And then uh, the average rate of performance... Uh, improvement was 13 pull-ups per workout so uh, about 1.3 pull-ups per set improvement um, during the palm cooling period versus three uh, during the not cooling period. So okay uh, moving on to the second study uh, or the the second I guess trial within the single paper. Um, this was also a pull-up study but it was using uh, recreational, recreational athletes naive to the pull-up exercise. So people who had never done pull-ups before. Um, and these people also did six weeks of pull-up training with the cooling glove. And then a period of pull-up training without the cooling glove. Um, and the rate of performance improvement with the cooling glove was 1.7, uh, pull-ups per workout versus 0.6 pull-ups per workout without the cooling glove. Um, so I find that kind of interesting. Uh, so, of of note, they were doing six sets here. Um, but anyway, I, I find this interesting because there were basically two pull up studies that were very similar: one in trained subjects and one in untrained subjects. And the untrained or and the trained subjects improved their number of pull ups per workout at like per set at like 4.5 times the rate as the untrained subjects, which I don't know. uh, You know, sometimes you just have a very responsive group of athletes, uh, but generally you assume that untrained people will respond to training better than trained people will. Uh, But the trained people here on a per set basis were improving their performance at like four and a half times the rate uh, the untrained people were, um, which is interesting. Anyway, moving on to the bench press study here. Uh, they initially enrolled 24 subjects. Only 10 of the 24 completed uh, the, the training program. Uh, eight subjects dropped out for personal reasons. And then six subjects dropped out because they weren't at a stable plateau during the control phase of the study. And so you might hear that and be like, wait, what are you talking about? So basically what they did here is they recruited people and they said, "Hey, enroll in this study if you're at a plateau in your bench press. Like you've been training the bench press for a while, you can't get any stronger. You're at a plateau." And then what they did is they put them on a standardized training protocol. And over a, over a four week period, they they had them train twice per week. And basically, if a subject experienced a measurable improvement in performance over that four week lead in period, they kicked them out of the study. Uh, they said like, no, you're not actually at a bench press plateau. We want to make sure that everyone who is about to experience the power of the cooling glove is actually at a plateau for bench press strength. Uh, so they did that. They, they kicked out everyone who was still capable of improving their bench press without the cooling glove. Uh, and then they underwent six weeks of training with the cooling glove, um, and in six weeks of training, doing two bench press workouts per week, they improved their bench press one RM's by about fourteen percent, um, which is which is very cool. Like for for a long time, my my bench press was plateaued just south of five hundred pounds. It was like four seventy five to four eighty five, depending on the day. I would love to be able to put about 65 to 70 pounds on my bench in six weeks. Um, I would be very interested in a intervention, a a non-pharmacological intervention that would allow me to do that, as I assume most people would be. Um, so, So that's cool. If something like that existed, I would love to know about it. I would love to use it. I assume most other lifters and athletes would as well. And if something were truly that effective, I I would expect uh, a lot of people to be using it and, you know, maybe like every professional sports team and every Olympic athlete if if something did actually work that well. Um, So anyway, to sum all of this up, uh, we have an entire body of literature showing um, moderate effects for aerobic exercise, smaller but still significant effect for anaerobic exercise, but... uh, of note only in hot conditions Um, and uh, several studies showing small positive effects for multi-set strength endurance, which again may be attributable just to placebo effects. It's hard to say. Uh, And then you have one study in this body of literature where, uh, you know, you have people doing 60 pull-ups per set for 10 sets. You have untrained lifters making strength gains four and a half times faster than trained lifters where people
0: you, you flip that i think trained making it yeah, yeah.
1: where trained lifters make uh strength uh pull up progress four and a half times faster than untrained people uh where people who are at a verified plateau uh add 14 percent to their bench press in six weeks um and uh yeah i i find all of that very interesting so um You know, do with that what you will. Uh, I'll be charitable and simply state that this one study is a clear outlier within this body of literature. Um, And I personally found some of the results of the study to be quite perplexing. Um, And I don't know that I would use that study to strongly inform my perception of the potential impact of cooling on, uh, exercise performance. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. That's, that's my opinion on this question, uh, for the next time that it's asked. And here's a fun tidbit seeing as, uh, one of the subjects in this study did, uh, 618 pull-ups across 10 sets, averaging, more than 60 percent uh treks you want to take a guess at what the world record for most pull-ups in a minute is uh
0: i can't because i can see the outline already cheated
1: it's 68 so anyway it's uh it's very cool that um someone's keeping that up over 10 sets that's uh you know i'm 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 proud of that guy and i wish he would have uh you know hit up guinness and said yeah hey, I can, uh, I can set this record.
0: Cool. Uh, I think you did a great job with that. I think that's very informative. And hopefully we'll never have to answer that question again.
1: Pr- presented as neutrally as possible. Um, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, let's let's move on. Let us this do. This is the second time we've tried to record this. And, and
0: I think you did a great th- job with I it. I
1: think that I did better this time around.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, all right. So I've got uh, kind of a different segment here. Uh, it's it's not one of our typical recurring segment, but I am uh, temporarily calling it contextualized clarifications, a bit of an alliteration there. So sometimes we are talking about fitness stuff, right? And so we're answering a question in a specific context or talking about a topic in a very specific context, uh, but it can lead to unintended applications or it might overstate significance when it's carried into other contexts. And that sounds very vague, but you'll kind of see what I'm getting at here. Uh, I basically have three topics that I want to provide some additional context or clarification. Um, just because, you know, I've talked about them in one specific scenario and I feel different about them potentially in other scenarios. So the first one I want to talk about is really low calorie diets. Okay. So um, in the fitness world, I think there's a little bit of sticker shock that occurs when people on on social media are talking about their diet, and they might say like, "Oh, I'm dieting," you know, as uh, a male on you know 1600 calories or 1500 calories, or for a female dieter um, who, who you know is saying, "You know, oh, I'm dieting on you know 1100, 1200 calories." I think there's a knee jerk reaction to see that number and say, damn, that's not a lot of food. That sounds bad. And in fitness, it's become more and more common to kind of crank that up several notches and be like, if you're dieting on, you know, 1180 calories a day as a relatively small person, uh, you know, your coach, whoever uh, recommended that, is an absolute piece of trash, definitely stupid, and almost certainly a bad person. Uh, and I think there are pretty obvious incentives kind of built into fitness to reinforce that knee jerk reaction. Uh, I think you'll see a lot of coaches who will say, Hey, all my clients eat a ton and they're losing fat very, very rapidly. So why aren't you? You know, like it's kind of a, a marketing angle of like, You know, my my biggest problem with my fat loss clients, they can't get all the food down. They're eating so much. And (laughs) I mean, we're trying to get, you know, extra candy and Snickers bars just to get the calories in. Uh, That's an exaggeration, obviously. But you can see what I'm getting at. There's this natural kind of knee-jerk reaction when you see low calories uh, to kind of say, oh, man, that's irresponsible. It's certainly dangerous and definitely inadvisable. But I think it's important. You know, I've talked in the past about how, there are benefits to a slow rate of weight loss. That is a, an approach that I feel pretty strongly about in most contexts. I think uh, slow and, su- and sustainable rates of weight loss are generally pretty pretty good. I've also talked in some contexts about some of the challenges that occur when you have very low energy availability, so when you've got acutely A very large energy deficit. So, I've talked about this in ways that might be thought to reinforce some of those knee jerk reactions, but I think it's really important to take a step back and contextualize some of these low calorie numbers, right? So, if you were to go and look at the literature in the clinical nutrition space, so more clinically oriented studies looking at weight loss programs in people who have obesity uh it's really not that uncommon to see diets prescribed that are 800 900 maybe a thousand calories per day and like i said this is often being prescribed to people with obesity whose body mass can can often be you know upwards of 100 kilograms right so it's not hard to find instances in the clinical nutrition literature of someone who is 100, 110 kilograms, and they're being put on an 800, 900 calorie diet. Uh, And in fact, I want to just say you can find it, I would say, it's quite common. Uh, Like, there are certain areas of the literature where that's almost kind of the default lever that you pull, right?
1: Just I mean, just pull up the old PubMed machine and type in VLCD. Yeah, and and, and see what what meets you.
0: Yeah, so I, I want to be really clear about this. I'm not presenting that as like a model for success. I'm not saying like, oh, you want to lose weight, whatever the context is, just eat like eight, 900 calories a day. It's plenty. But I think it's important when you see people talking about like, oh my God, if you go under 1,200 calories for a brief period of time, that is totally dangerous no matter what. That in and of itself is not necessarily an evidence-based statement. It, it is contradictory relative to the clinical nutrition, uh, literature. So of course, anytime you're talking about energy intake, you have to look very specifically at the context, uh, in which a person is dieting. You know, some people are going to be able to handle lower calorie targets than others in a very safe, very effective way. Uh, but, but I just wanted to kind of reiterate the fact that, you know, when, when you see some of these lower calorie intakes, you know, we've had people who use MacroFactor, for example, who say, I mean, we have safeguards in place where you have to override kind of a lower threshold for, for calorie recommendations. But we have seen people who say like, Hey, uh, can you take a look at my macro or calorie recommendations? They seem low and we'll look at it and be like, well, you know, based on the rate of weight loss you've selected as your goal, those calories got to come from somewhere, right? And so if we're talking about trying to lose a kilogram of fat a week, for example, We got to find a way to make a deficit of at least, you know, 9,400 calories, Uh, and there's only seven days in a week, right? So the daily deficit in order to make that math work is going to have to be big, and then you factor in the fact that when you are restricting calories to anywhere close to that degree – we often see reductions in total daily energy expenditure. So it's not just where do I find 9,400 calories, it's where do I find 9,400 calories plus the drop in total daily energy expenditure that's likely to occur. So it's important when you look at calorie numbers uh, to not have a knee-jerk reaction about what is an appropriate intake. Uh, It's important to consider What is the body composition of the individual? What is their body size? What is their goal? What is the intended rate of weight loss? And then you can kind of contextualize the number from there.
1: Yeah, I I think also people are given maybe slightly unrealistic expectations of how many calories they can eat to achieve a certain body composition or a certain physique. Uh, Because like energy needs are variable just like everything else. Uh and on social media, generally people who are at an extreme end of the bell curve are the ones who get more attention. Um, You know, because they're they're outliers and uh one might argue inherently more interesting. And so like you see this with strength, for example. Like if, if you follow a lot of powerlifting pages on social media, you'll see people who aren't incredibly big squat you know, six, 700 pounds. And, you know, it's, it's like, Oh, here's this person who's not even the best in the world. Who's way stronger than you. So like, this is, this is a normal, a normal ass thing that they're doing. It's like, well, no, like there's bigger freaks out there than this person, but like this person's also a fucking freak. Like, you know, that's, um, and and I think a lot of new lifters don't fully understand that, like just how variable strength potential is. And I think, I think it's the same thing with, uh, with energy needs. Like, um, we, we talked about that Ponser study, um, l- looking at the relationship between lean body mass and, uh, and energy expenditure, um, over the lifespan. And like, you can, you can look at the scatter plots in that study, like at a given, at a, a given level of lean body mass, th- there could be people who, you know, their daily energy needs are like six, 700 calories over the average. And some people six, 700 calories under the average. But I think on social media posts will get traction. If someone's like fucking shredded and they're like, I look like this and I still eat 3,400 calories a day. And it's just like, yeah, good for you, buddy. Like that's, that's really cool. But like, that's not gonna, that's not gonna be the experience of most people. Right. Um, And I mean, like we've talked about this, like how, how little you were eating to get absolutely peeled for your last show. Right. Uh, we've talked with Eric Helms about this as well. Like, dude, a lot of natural bodybuilders to get absolutely peeled for the last like month or two of their cut, they're not eating much of anything.
0: Yeah. I, I remember talking to Helms and I, I was kind of like embarrassed about it, but I was like, honestly, I got in really good shape this last time, but I ate a calorie intake that you're not supposed to eat based on everything I've heard. And he's like, Oh no, that's the secret. That's the trick. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, yeah, when I started doing that, I started getting leaner.
1: But no, so I I think what you just said is very interesting. Like you felt embarrassed by it. Yeah. And, and you know, as a responsible person, you probably didn't want to put that out in the world. Right. You probably didn't want to say like, Hey, this is the size dude I am. And here's how little I was eating to look like this. Cause it, you know, you're you're probably aware that people would take that not as an N equals one experience, but as advice. And right. you don't necessarily want to put out in the world like this is how little you should be eating. Right. And so I think there's a filtering mechanism where people who can eat way more than average and still lose weight get disproportionately more airtime and people who have to eat a normal amount to lose weight or less than average to lose weight generally if they talk about it it's going to get less attention and they're probably just going to be less likely to talk about it in general
0: and you're going to get owned if you talk about it right like if if i go out there and i'm like oh yeah here's my calorie intake people are like that's stupid that's irresponsible it's way too low yeah like yeah there's there's a cost to putting that out there
1: right and and so i think all of those things together lead people to have a unrepresentative idea of what normal energy needs are for weight loss and also to not have any concept of what energy needs for weight loss might be for someone whose daily energy expenditure is like lower than would be predicted by the equations like dude i'm still somewhere in the neighborhood of 240 i'm reasonably active and i'm cutting on cutting pretty slow on a little under 2,200 calories per day. If I, if I bumped it up to losing a kilo a week, I think, I think I would be on like 1,400 calories a day or something like that. Um, which like losing a kilo a week, that's not a ridiculous rate of weight loss. That, that would be less than 1% of my body weight per week. Right. And I think that a lot of people would balk at someone my size eating 1400 calories per day, but right. like that would be a reasonable rate of weight loss. I still have plenty of, of weight to lose and that's about what I would need to eat to lose weight at that rate. Um, and like, I don't know. I, I I do think that my energy expenditure relative to my body size is a little bit lower than average, but like I'm not an outlier. Like that's uh that is comfortably within the realm of normal. And uh, I, I think people just aren't exposed to that.
0: Yeah. And, and so w- once again, I want to clarify my my general approach, um, if we just throw context out the window, my general approach to dieting is take it slow, you know, try not to have an enormous caloric deficit day in and day out, you know, try to be mindful of energy availability. That way, you know, there are positive effects, you know, keeping calories a little bit higher, very positive for things like satiety, energy level, uh, essential fatty acid intake, management of sex hormones, uh, you know, maintaining muscle, maintaining performance throughout the cut, uh, potentially having a more sustainable approach that will be, uh, that will be better for long-term maintenance once you've achieved the the weight loss you wish to achieve. There are all sorts of upsides to trying to keep your calories as high as you feasibly can during a diet.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the whole reason I'm not trying to lose a kilo. Exactly, yeah. So, so I, d-
0: <laughs> I don't want it to seem like I'm saying everyone should be eating 800 calories. That's not the case. And in some cases, that would be inadvisable and potentially deleterious. But the idea that it is wildly irresponsible for anyone to go over whatever the number is that week 1200 1300 1400 the idea that you can't go below this number for any period of time in any context is not really compatible with the clinical weight loss literature and i don't think a lot of people know that uh moving on i've got another one i wanted to to talk about so a really common thing uh is the idea that um as we get older our protein needs go up a little bit. So so we should be shooting for more protein per day um, and more protein per meal as well. That, that's a really common thing that's out there in the fitness world. And, uh, you know, Helms recently and Mass Covered Uh, a review paper on this topic. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about age and protein intake, which is why I wanted to kind of cover it in this segment. I've never been one to go out there and really aggressively push, you know, huge bumps in protein intake as an individual ages, but I have kind of left wiggle room for it here and there when discussing protein intake. And I think it's important to contextualize what the recommendations actually look like in the literature so first of all there is a, a review paper by I think it's Paulson and colleagues uh, my font is very small here I think Paulson and colleagues anabolic resistance of muscle protein turnover comes in various shapes and sizes so a lot they have a, a comment here about you know bumping up protein as a result of aging and it says specifically protein intake should be increased above the current RDA to be closer to 1.2 grams per kilogram per day, exercise, resistance exercise in particular, seems to drastically increase the dietary amino acid sensitivity of older muscle to protein ingestion. And so the idea here is when you see a lot of these papers on PubMed that say, "Hey, when you get older, you need more protein per serving, more protein per day, in many instances, they have baked in the assumption that you are not exercising regularly or lifting weights uh, and they and more specifically they're saying you need to bump your protein from 0. 0.8 grams per kilogram to like 1.2 grams per kilogram, which most people in the fitness world are probably closer to 2.2 than they are to 1.2 in many cases. yeah it's not necessarily required but if anything, I think people in our area of the fitness world tend to err toward higher, Rather than lower protein intake, so it, it's really important to keep in mind that second part of that quote, which is that resistance exercise seems to really drastically alter this relationship between age and protein needs, especially when we're talking about in the 30s, 40s, and 50s mm-hmm. in terms of age.
1: Well, i i don't even I don't even necessarily know that resistance exercise is required. Like I. I'm obviously not arguing that it's that it's a bad thing, but the the whole idea of anabolic resistance to uh, protein feeding with age came from a couple studies out of I believe the U.S. and Canada, where um, like b- both of those are car cultures and daily step counts tend to be pretty low, rates of uh, rates of sedentariness tend to be pretty high, um, and then I don't have the. I don't have the citation on hand and I don't remember the author, but there was a group out of either Belgium or the Netherlands, I believe Netherlands. that uh, that tried to replicate that and they, they didn't, but you know, they were dealing with people who were just generally more active, had higher daily step counts, weren't necessarily, I don't think um, taking part in purposeful intense exercise, but you know, they they were dudes in their sixties and seventies who were just, Still moving around quite a bit because you know their <laughs> the way their cities are designed <laughs> requires them to move around a fair bit, um, and that seemed to be sufficient to ameliorate uh, so-called anabolic resistance. So it, it it doesn't even necessarily seem to be that like a like resistance training needs to be applied to uh, to ameliorate this. It, it seems to be that anabolic resistance is a confluence of age and sedentariness but if you just have age but aren't sedentary that 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 seems to to go a long way towards ameliorating it
0: yeah and so there's a a review paper by Moore uh, where he kind of identifies some of the factors that lead to this anabolic resistance in older individuals Um, and one of the things that's tricky is a lot of times as we age our activity level goes down. So it can be very hard to separate out when we just look at older individuals as a cross-sectional perspective who already are less active than they used to be, how much of this is related to aging and how much is related to the drop in activity level. But the uh, some of the factors that are thought to predispose this anabolic resistance, uh, talking about chronic inflammation. Uh, potentially, uh, reduced capillary capacity or, um, you know, vasodilatory capacity. So, uh, the capillarity of tissues and also the responsiveness of the vascular tissue itself, um, also potentially some attenuated muscle uptake, um, when it comes to amino acids. But what's really important is when you start looking at a lot of these potential predisposing factors. Many of them are very directly influenced by exercise and physical activity, and in Moore's review paper, which I think Helms did a great job covering, uh, it. I don't want to paraphrase uh, and oversimplify too much, but it largely makes the case that you know when we're talking about a you know a 52-year-old uh, lifetime lifter who's still training hard. They probably mo- look more similar to. Uh, in terms of protein response, a 25-year-old lifter than someone who is their age but totally sedentary and inactive and not training. Uh, you know, the, the act of, you know, doing regular physical activity and training regularly seems to attenuate, uh, if not largely abolish, a lot of these things associated with anabolic resistance. So uh, we get asked a lot of questions from people who are in their 40s, in their 50s, and sometimes in their 60s as well. And they say, how much do I need to bump my protein because of age? And these are people who are extremely fit. They're very active. They're training like crazy. And in most cases, the answer is probably somewhere between not at all and maybe a tiny bit. Um, And this is something that is, you know, if you've been following the Stronger by Science cinematic universe, when you see papers about anabolic resistance, sometimes you'll see them talking about age, but also obesity and excess adiposity. One of the ideas that we really leaned into when we were talking about P ratios and whether or not uh, obesity or excess adiposity would attenuate uh, the potential for hypertrophy, you know, this idea of anabolic resistance came up and you know we push back pretty hard on the concept that someone who is you know has obesity but is exercising regularly is active and is doing regular intense training we're like man if you look at the mechanisms here it's very likely that they're going to be you know rescuing that ability to respond quite well to dietary amino acids and so this particular review paper was focusing on aging but there's in my opinion pretty clear translation uh, to what we were getting at, which is the fact that if you look at anabolic resistance in someone with obesity, who's totally sedentary, totally untrained, that probably isn't very representative of anabolic resistance in someone with obesity who is quite physically active and training regularly. So uh, important stuff to highlight there. One last thing I want to mention very briefly. I know you want to get to some Q&A questions. Um, In the past, I've been pretty hard on cardio, uh, which seems to contradict my current uh, road to Athens. But I think it's important to contextualize that. So a lot of times when we talk about cardio, it's in two specific contexts. One is I get a lot of questions about cardio during contest prep for physique athletes. And I think there's a a serious tendency to overdo cardio during physique prep. And the downsides of that can be... uh, pretty rough uh, a lot of times it can uh, take people to a spot where their hunger is is really not very manageable they're tapping into their ability to recover from their resistance training uh, there's you know potentially heightened uh, possibility of lean mass loss you know when you're talking about contest prep where losses in lean mass are are, are just kind of part of the process in most cases, uh, it's a very precarious physiological state where I think overdoing cardio a little bit can really come back to bite you. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, but, uh, the other context where we talk about cardio a lot is on the topic of concurrent training and the interference effect. And a lot of times I think cardio, it's potential impact in blunting strength or hypertrophy is very overblown. We've talked about that previously quite a few times on the podcast, but when you talk about the interference effect with concurrent training, first of all, the effect on power is much more notable than the effect on strength or hypertrophy, uh, which is a really important thing to keep in mind. Uh, The other thing is when you look at the volume, the frequency of cardio in studies on the interference effect in concurrent training, it's usually way higher than what you're seeing. Like, we'll, we'll get someone who asks, hey, can I do this much cardio? And it's like a tenth of what's going on in those concurrent training studies. So in most cases, uh, the whole interference effect, you know, as long as you're not pushing pretty high volumes and pretty high frequencies of cardio, it's usually not a particularly noteworthy factor. Um, now, outside of those uh, those two contexts, physique prep and concurrent training and interference effect, just looking at exercise and its potential impact on just general health and longevity. uh, I'll link to a paper here by Grimaud and colleagues. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. But the list of mechanisms by which regular exercise can attenuate the aging process and promote longevity is absolutely insane. I mean, there's got to be 35 different bullet points here related to Uh, the brain, the vascular system, the heart, um, the liver, I mean, uh, the, I mean, the management of systemic inflammation, uh, the management of autophagy over time, uh, the number of mechanisms by which regular engagement with some amount of cardiovascular exercise, uh, can impact positively your health and longevity. Uh, it, it, it's kind of one of those things, I'll be honest, I kind of forgot how cool exercise was. If I'm being completely (laughs) honest, because I mean, you you might,
1: yeah, you just kind of take it for granted.
0: You take it for granted and you get so locked into training that you forget about exercising. So like when I think about, you know, ever since probably like my third year of undergrad, for me, I got over the absolutely insane benefits associated with exercise and just like marveling over how powerful it can be. And then I got like tunnel vision on training sets, reps, reps, you know, frequency optimizing hypertrophy, I got so focused on strength and hypertrophy, I forgot about just the generalized insane benefits of exercise. And so I think it's important to point those out sometimes when, you know, a lot of times people in the strength world or the physique world, they view cardiovascular exercise or aerobic exercise, I guess, as something that is, uh, an opposing force, you know, relative to what they're trying to achieve. I think that idea of creating this kind of duality or this dichotomy where you're either focused on strength and hypertrophy or engaging in aerobic exercise, I, I don't think that that's a particularly constructive way to look at it. Uh, and th- the benefits of just doing a little bit of exercise are, are pretty profound, um, even if you separate them out from weight loss or, or a variety of other reasons why people might do it. So I think it's important as someone who has, you know, said a lot of things about minimizing cardio in certain scenarios, uh, I don't want that to seem as if, uh, you know, I, I don't want everyone to do what I did and take exercise for granted. Cause it's a pretty special thing when you look at the just broad spectrum of physiological impacts.
1: So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the interference effect there. Yes. Um, so I, I'm gonna lop a bomb into this conversation real quick. Oh boy! And I will I will admit on the outset, uh, this the study I'm about to talk about. I haven't read it yet. Someone nice. <laughs> someone sent this to me yesterday, um, so I so I just simply haven't had uh, an opportunity to read it yet. But it looks like it might be kind of spicy, uh, hot new concurrent training meta analysis just dropped three days ago. Uh oh. Um, and, and again, this was just sent to me yesterday. So all I've done is read the abstract. I'm being transparent about this. I don't know all of the details of this, but but uh, I, I could see this being contentious because it seems to be implying that the interference effect actually completely fake. Wow. Um, so here's I'm just going to read the results here. And and
0: I thought you were going to contradict my perspective, but you are doubling down hard. Yeah. You're you're pushing it.
1: I'm saying that you are being a coward and still (laughs) implying that the interference effect may exist when, uh, no. So, okay, here's, here's just the, the results from the abstract of this study. And, And we can link this in the show notes. And if, uh, If anyone listening to this gets around to reading the full text before I do, I would be very interested to know your take on it, Uh, but here are the results. A total of 43 studies were included. The estimated standardized mean difference based on the random effects model were negative 0.06 for strength, negative 0.28 for explosive strength, uh, and that was the only uh, effect that was significant. And negative 0.01 for uh, muscle hypertrophy, which is essentially no effect. Uh, Attenuation of explosive strength uh, was more pronounced when concurrent training was performed within the same session than when sessions were separated by at least three hours. So when uh, explosive training and endurance training were performed in different sessions separated by at least three hours, there wasn't a significant attenuation of explosive performance. Uh, And no significant effects were found for the other moderators, i.e. type of aerobic training, running versus cycling, frequency of concurrent training, more or less than five weekly sessions, training status, untrained versus trained, and mean age, less than 40 or greater than 40 years old. And then uh, this is their conclusion. Concurrent aerobic and strength training does not compromise muscle hypertrophy and maximal strength development. However, explosive strength gains may be attenuated, especially when aerobic and strength training are performed in the same session. These results appeared to be independent of the type of aerobic training, frequency of concurrent training, training status, and age.
0: Well, so, it's, so it's... The effect sizes, if you ignore statistical significance, do kind of... still kind of uh, reinforce that concept that you know power is what's largely being impacted... Uh, and then strength and hypertrophy it sounds like they're saying these might be
1: this is saying strength and hypertrophy aren't impacted at all
0: yeah yeah well that's interesting uh, we'll have to uh we'll have to dig into that that's
1: spicy man I, i i think i'm probably going to review this for the january issue of mass unless mike beats me to it nice but uh yeah man that's that's not necessarily what i expected to see
0: Cool. Well, yeah, so like I said, um, there are some as- or some scenarios where you want to keep an eye on your cardio volume and frequency um, for context-specific reasons. Uh, but generally speaking, I don't want it to seem like I have a just overall anti-cardio vibe that I'm putting out. Um, now, I'm going to expose myself here for calling this the morning. Uh, I feel compelled to tell you it's 2.52 p.m., uh the floor is yours uh as many q a questions as you wish to cover you're welcome and uh and then i will be playing us out today yeah
1: you know i I think it'll be fine i just need to get some cookies baked before 4 p.m and i am quick at baking cookies and one thing i'll note is unless unless that meta-analysis i referenced um just really blows me out of the water I, I do still think the the interference effect is real. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, don't necessarily assume that my actual position on the topic is identical to uh, the abstract of that study I just read.
0: Or the words that literally came out of your mouth.
1: I said you, that it, when you were reading, when I you said that reading, it's spicy yes. and they were lobbing bombs. Yeah, um,
0: that's the thing, though, with knowledge bombs. Yes. With meta analyses. Um Man, a, a lot of people because they're you know at the top of the hierarchy of evidence, you think, oh, easy, you know, it's it's right there, very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Man, you really got to dig in when you're yeah. critically reading a meta-analysis. Uh, you got to get really into the details. So we'll we'll have to report back on that.
1: Yeah, the the thing that came to mind for me was uh, just based on the abstract, it looked it looks like they looked at aerobic training. Uh, frequency as a moderator variable but not like total minutes per week Uh, and i my my hunch is that that would be a a pretty large effect like you know if you're if you're doing cardio five days per week but it's like 20 minutes per session who cares but if
0: you're doing warming up
1: yeah if if you're doing cardio five days per week and it's like an hour per session i kind of assume that that's going to negatively impact strength gains yeah anyway um yeah. Yeah. Some Q and A's. These should all be pretty quick. I think, uh, starting with Facebook, uh, William Lim jr. Uh, asks Inter- incremental progression, pros and cons, a thought experiment. If I'm in a hurry to get somewhere in my fitness journey, what would happen? Or if I'm not in a hurry to get somewhere in my fitness journey, what would happen if I just progress incrementally by half or even a quarter of a pound per week and concentrate on good form technique and contraction? Uh, for example, I start with just the bar on press and keep adding half a pound each week. Seems like it would be a lot friendlier to join slash connective tissue. And at some point in the future, I'll catch up with those chasing numbers. Is there too much to miss out on the u- usual progression models? And I I see where he's coming from with this question. Like basically, if you're kind of doing a linear progression. Why stick with five or 10 pound jumps when you could just kind of micro load from the get go. And the thing is, I could see that being inefficient, but still effective if you're completely untrained and just getting into lifting. Um, But I, I think that it will be. Yeah. I think that there's probably a middle ground there (laughs) where, you know, like, let's say you start squatting and, or you, you start deadlifting and the most you can deadlift your first time with good form is, uh, let's say 185 pounds or something like that. But, you know, that's, that's your initial max because you're not good at deadlifting. Um, and, you know, your your muscles, your connective tissue, everything would be capable of, say, deadlifting eh, somewhere in the low 300s. But, like, you currently just aren't good at deadlifting. Um, so the the initial phase of training where you're doing a linear progression, just adding weight to the bar week to week, You are to some degree trying to condition your muscles and connective tissue to avoid injury or reduce your injury risk. Um, but like largely you're just, you're just learning the exercise. And I think that from a kind of health and injury risk reduction perspective, even if you're using a faster rate of progression, say adding five or 10 pounds to the bar every week on that deadlift. Uh, You're still probably in good shape, mostly due to the fact that you are at all points along that continuum until things start getting legitimately hard, until you've actually learned to deadlift pretty well. You are staying well below what those tissue tolerances are, like your hamstrings, your glutes, your spinal erectors are capable of producing more force than they're doing to deadlift 185. You're just not good at deadlifting yet. So I, I think that I I understand where you're coming from with kind of a uh, connective tissue being nice to your joints type perspective. Uh, but I, I really don't think you need to be that conservative. And then from a more long term perspective, um, you know, the the variability in individual strength from workout to workout is, is more than half a pound. (laughs) So, you know, I, I think ultimately you'll end up hitting the same wall that anyone else would, um, and still needing to move on to something else at approximately the same strength levels when you otherwise would have needed to. But, you know, you're maybe extending out a process that otherwise would have taken three to six months into being a process that takes like five years. So um, yeah, I I see where you're coming from, but I don't really see any notable upsides to that approach, but depending how much you value efficiency, maybe some, some clear downsides. Uh, The one thing I will note is I, I am kind of a fan of micro loading. If for, um, for lifts where you just can't put as much weight on the bar. So you know, if you're doing like curls, tricep extensions, uh, or even for um, just naturally weaker male lifters and a lot of female lifters, like the overhead press, you know, a five pound jump can can be a pretty big jump. So getting, getting some plates that let you load, you know, two and a half pound jumps or one kilo jumps, or even like uh, one pound, half kilo jumps, something like that. I, I think that can be productive because functionally, like a, a one kilo jump uh, for a curl might be the same as like a two and a half, three, even five kilo jump for a deadlift. So, you know, I, I think you can scale this to kind of what your actual loading capacity is on an exercise by exercise basis. But, you know, for the big lifts, at least, I I certainly don't think you uh, really gain much by going that slow. Uh, moving on, Jarrett Wade Brumett asks, um, going off of the study you shared earlier this week, uh, I'd really like to hear what the literature says about what the general public should do to improve the likelihood of maintaining weight loss. I I think the study he's referring to was a study we shared, uh, from the Instagram account, which was previously a mass research brief on, um, resistance training, independently reducing visceral fat, uh, even in the absence of a uh, purposeful caloric deficit, I assume I, I assume that's what's being referenced. Uh, or maybe a better question. What's the literature say to be predicting factors of regain that people should address when attempting weight loss? Maybe this was about something you posted. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, basically, what what factors um, predict successful weight loss maintenance? I, I think that's essentially what's being asked here. Um, and so I, the the first place my brain went to answer this question was to the National Weight Control Registry. What that is, uh, it's, it's an American thing, and you can apply to be a part of the registry if you're at least 18 years old and have lost at least 30 pounds and have maintained it for at least a year. So it, it's essentially a thing that you can just... Uh, opt into and and that is one thing to note it's not a perfectly representative sample of everyone who's lost weight it's a representative sample of everyone who's lost weight and knows what the national weight control registry is and wants to tell you about it and wants to tell you about it so you know this may not be the perfect sample for answering this question but i i think it's one of the better ones that exists yeah uh so with, with that caveat out of the way um Within the National Weight Control Registry, uh, they say there is a variety in how National Weight Control Registry members keep the weight off. Uh, Most report continuing to maintain a low-calorie, low-fat diet and doing high levels of activity. And then just some notes, 78% eat breakfast every day, 75% weigh themselves at least once a week, 62% watch less than 10 hours of TV per week. And 90% exercise on average, at least one hour per day. I don't know the degree to which all of those things are necessarily causal. I don't necessarily know that a low-fat diet is better than a low-carb diet for maintaining weight loss. I don't necessarily think that eating breakfast every day is important. So keep in mind, those are those are correlative things, not causal things. People in the National Weight Control Registry, those are the things that they report doing. Um but one of the things from really every line of research I've seen looking at weight loss maintenance that seems to be a very important factor is exercise. Um you know, you were just talking a second ago about how how cool exercise is and all of its benefits and I think that exercise gets kind of a bad rap in some circles for its impact on weight loss because the research that's out there looking at the impact of just exercise on weight loss itself, isn't that promising? Like if you take people, uh, you know, just pluck them out of the general population and say, hey, you're going to start exercising. Like doesn't matter if it's high intensity interval training, doesn't matter if it's cardio, doesn't matter if it's resistance training, whatever. Generally what you see is like, yeah, maybe they'll lose a couple pounds, but not many. Uh, it doesn't seem to be an effective exercise. Only interventions don't seem to be effective standalone interventions for a large amount of long-term weight loss, but exercise does seem to be very important for weight loss maintenance. Um, and I, I think that there are some reasons for that. One is uh, actually I could, I could talk about this for a long time, but I think the biggest reason why exercise is important for weight loss maintenance, um, you know, on, on top of it, just generally being good for you is exercise seems to regulate your hunger pretty well. So, um, you have kind of homeostatic, uh, weight mechanisms within your body where if everything is working appropriately, even without tracking your, your nutritional intake, On average, for most people, if you're reasonably active, your felt caloric needs should comport pretty well with your actual caloric needs for weight maintenance. Um, But if you're reasonably sedentary, those homeostatic weight regulatory factors can kind of get out of whack. And so basically, you just wind up being hungrier than you need to be for the actual number of calories that you're expending per day. So... Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people who lose weight and then keep it off do also do some degree of purposeful nutritional regulation, whether that's a particular type of diet, whether that's counting calories, like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of methods people go with to lose the weight and, and keep it off on the nutritional side of things. But exercise just makes all of that work better because if you're exercising, and you're in a small calorie deficit, you'll probably be less hungry than if you're not exercising and you're in a small calorie deficit. And then when you've lost a lot of weight and you're trying to keep it off maintenance, when you're, when you've lost a lot of fat, leptin levels are low. Hunger is probably going to be elevated. Uh, Exercise can kind of take the edge off of that and help those homeostatic uh, hunger regulatory factors just work better. Um, So yeah, uh, you know, reducing sedentary time. So a lot of these people report not watching a ton of television. I think that's important. Uh, 75% weigh themselves at least once per week. You know, I, I think, uh, that kind of goes to the, to the adage of what gets measured, gets managed, like keeping an awareness of your weight so it doesn't start creeping back up. I think that's probably pretty important. Uh, but I, I think if you were trying to narrow it down to just one thing, um, Exercise seems to be like regularly exercising and not being sedentary seems to be uh, quite important.
0: Yeah. And if I could add one thing to kind of tie some concepts together, because I yeah. think if people are taking notes and they should be. I often say people should take notes when they listen to the show. They'll notice we've said a few things that on the surface sound to be a bit contradictory. So we talked about how the interference effect doesn't have a notable impact on hypertrophy. We've also talked about how, generally speaking, being, you know, having a high physical activity level can help regulate hunger in uh, a caloric deficit in the context of weight loss. But when I was talking about cardio during prep, one of the things I kind of mentioned as an aside was uh, potentially how that can impact hunger responses in people doing physique prep. And I think it's really important to highlight that the distinction there is the physiological context of doing contest prep. So, if the concurrent training literature was all done in people who were four and a half percent body fat and training their ass off and in a caloric deficit, I think we might see something going on with hypertrophy. Yeah. Um, and one of the things we see with key drivers of hyperphagia, the really pronounced hunger that occurs in, you know, physique or bodybuilding prep. One of the key drivers of hyperphagia is the loss of fat-free mass. And so that's why you have to take these, these statements about the interference effect and the relationship between physical activity and hunger. Those are generally speaking, you know, the the more generalizable approaches to to those topics or kind of conclusions there but when you put those into the context of someone who is doing contest prep shredded caloric deficit all their hormones are out of whack their hypothalamus is completely checked out and they're overdoing their cardio now we see a, a slightly different response to how that excess or that excessive cardio Can impact their hunger management so I just wanted to I I wanted to make sure whenever I'm listening to a podcast and something at the beginning and something at the end seem contradictory and they don't draw it out for me I get very frustrated so the context the the physiological uh, aspects that come with physique prep really do make it a very unique uh, context to talk about
1: yes I agree all right, moving on to uh, Reddit. There was a question from NoGoat goat um, six, eight, eight, seven. And <laughs> this question was very long. And then at the end, he added an edit, edit. I could have made this whole post shorter and just asked what's the most I can get done in the least amount of time. Uh, and this was in the context of resistance training. So basically asking, um, you know, if you don't want to necessarily train for optimal to get as strong as possible or build as much muscle as as quickly as you can, um, you know, what can you get away with to still get a lot of the benefits while uh, trying to maximize efficiency? So, you know, most, most results with the, the least uh, time and effort investment possible. Um, and so this... I, it, it wasn't clear whether this was specifically about strength or a combination of strength and hypertrophy. Uh, for strength, there was a, uh, recent study by, uh, one of the stronger by science coaches pack on the minimal effective dose of training for strength development. Um, if you just plug that exact phrase into Google, I'm sure his paper will come up. Uh, and he previously authored, a. a brief meta analysis on that as well. So you, you can check out those two things for a combination of strength and hypertrophy. Um, I th- I think what I'm about to say will will get the job done pretty well to get you, I don't know, maybe 70% of the gains you would be capable of achieving in minimal time. So uh, first off, I think you should be trading training with uh, pretty moderate loads and in moderate rep ranges. So I'm going to operationally define that as sets of five to 15 reps. You should mostly be doing compound lifts because you're going to be training more musculature per unit of time invested uh, in per set you're doing. Um, Frequency can be fairly low uh, one to two times per muscle group per week. Um, You don't have to do a ton of sets, about two to three sets per exercise. You know, if you wanted to maximize hypertrophy long-term volume would probably need to creep up. But to get reasonably large, you don't need insane levels of training volume, um, but you should have a pretty high level of effort per set. So training uh, to failure or within a rep or two of failure. So I think the most stripped down version of this um, is so actually this is exactly what I tell people to do when they come to me with this question. Uh, they say like, Hey, look, I don't want to spend much time training at all. Maybe like an hour total per week. What should I do? So you're going to train twice a week. One day you're going to do squat overhead press and either rows or pull-ups, whichever one you want to do. Uh, and the other day you're going to do deadlift bench press and either rows or pull-ups, whichever one you didn't do the first day. Um, for the squat bench press deadlift overhead press you're going to do three sets you're going to take them all basically to failure or until you feel like your form is about to just completely go to shit um and you're going to start with a load that you can do for about 15 reps and if you're going to air air a little bit low If, if you do you know 16 18 reps the first week that's totally fine uh and then week over week you just go up by five or 10 pounds and just try to maintain as many reps as possible as the weights go up. Uh, And then eventually when you hit a five rep max and you know like, oh, when I go up and wait next week, I'm gonna do fewer than five reps, you just start over. So you go back to whatever weight you did the first time. So, you know, you use an app, use a spreadsheet, keep a training log, like make note of your weights and performances over time. So just start over. And just try to beat the number of reps you did all the way back up. So the, the weight you started with that you could initially do for 15 reps, if now you can do it for 18, cool, that's progress. And that's also more than 15 reps. So the next time you start back over, just, just skip that first week and start with something that corresponds to about 15 reps. And same, same thing, repeat the process, build back up, and try to hit a heavier five rep max in your kind of final week of this buildup than you did previously. If you do that, Cool. You made progress. You're stronger and just start over again. Um, so that's what you're going to do with squat bench deadlift, uh, overhead press two to three sets really go all out every time. And then for, uh, for rows and pull-ups, pull-downs, just, you know, any, any upper back training, um, i i mean i think just do like three or four sets and and just hammer them um no one's gonna ask what your one rep max row is uh so you know you're you're just you're just trying to crank it out get the work get the work in uh and i don't think you need to think about those too terribly hard if you can maintain more than 15 reps over three or four sets add some more weight to the bar uh if you guess too heavy and by the last set you're, you're not able to complete five or six reps, take a little weight off the bar, but you know, just, just really get after it for three or four sets and and you'll be good. So, um, six, six total exercises, two training sessions per week. Um, you know, that's not going to, that's not going to make you the most muscular or the strongest person in the world, but you should be able to get all of that done in about 30 minutes per session. And, uh, you know, it, most people should be able to make pretty decent gains from that. So that that is exactly what I would recommend uh, in the situation that you're describing. And then this last one by Needman. Uh, how big of a deal are the negative effects of NSAIDs? I understand they can blunt hypertrophy, but to what degree? Is the occasional mid-hangover ibuprofen really killing my gains? And for this one, I... I kind of think that the negative impact of NSAIDs on strength and hypertrophy, I I think that's largely been overblown. Um, Most of the studies that are investigating that. So, so just one general thing about research is that once a body of literature is developed pretty well, then you start getting more nuanced studies that are kind of trying to paint in the details. So, for example, maybe a dose response type study, but to justify something like that, generally the early studies in a body of literature are are slightly extreme to verify that a potential effect exists that warrants looking into further. So in the case of the NSAID literature, this is something that gets talked about a lot, but there's there's not actually a ton of studies on this. Uh, and and the studies that are out there do tend to show that uh, using NSAIDs during resistance training does blunt hypertrophy outcomes. Uh, and some of the effects um, are, are pretty notable. So it might reduce hypertrophy by anywhere from one third to two thirds of what you could otherwise expect without NSAIDs. Um, so that, that seems fairly notable, but the thing to keep in mind is the dosages used in those studies for the NSAIDs are quite high. Um, and generally they're either being used every training day or every day. So, you know, I think people hear that and they say like, they compartmentalize that as like, oh, NSAIDs are bad. I have a headache, but I can't take an ibuprofen because that's going to kill my gains. That's not what's being studied. It's looking at like chronic long-term use of quite high doses of NSAIDs. So, you know, if you need to take some NSAIDs just on a one-off basis, because, you know, you, you got a joint ache, you got a headache, you have a hangover, like that's, I assume that's fine. And most importantly, that hasn't been researched. Um So, you know, the the stuff that's out there shows that like, ah, there's, there's maybe a notable negative effect if you're using a lot of this stuff very consistently, uh, chronically. But I think that lower doses, probably not a huge deal. Um, and I think that occasional uses also probably not a huge deal. Um, but the, like, that's just not what the research is looking at to this point. Um, one thing to note as well is I think that it's largely reflective of like a hormetic response. so hormesis is basically the idea that for a particular input uh the the input itself might exist on a bell curve and there is an optimal level of whatever that input is for the output that you're interested in and it's it's most frequently hormesis is most most generally comes up when you're talking about uh like stress or um, like, like physiological stressors. So in in this case, we're talking about inflammation. And so some degree of post-exercise inflammation is beneficial for the muscle remodeling and hypertrophy response. Um, and so if you really, really blunt that with high doses of NSAIDs, now you're kind of to one side of the hormetic curve and you don't get the, the magnitude of outcome you're interested in if inflammation, on the other hand, is way too high, that can also have negative effects. So there's been either one or two studies looking at NSAID usage in elderly people, uh, or not elderly, but older people doing resistance training. And in at least one of those studies, they found that NSAIDs, when paired with resistance training, actually improved hypertrophy outcomes. So older people tend to have higher baseline levels of inflammation, and it, it could be that they're To the other side of that hormetic curve, maybe inflammation is too high and using some NSAIDs to bring that down actually has a beneficial effect. So, you know, I I think that ultimately that's sort of the relationship you're dealing with. So there's a range of inflammation that could be occurring and you need some amount of it, but not none of it and not the most of it. So I think if you're using low doses of NSAIDs to knock down some sort of inflammatory response a little bit, you're probably sh- just shifting yourself along that hormetic curve very slightly. And it's probably not going to have that much of an effect, especially if it's only used intermittently. That is that is my assumption. I, I think most people who aren't just using high doses of NSAIDs every day probably just don't even need to worry about it. Um, but again, th- this body of literature is relatively young and there haven't been studies to kind of flesh out all of those details, dose response work, et cetera. So um, it, it, at this point, we don't know for sure, but but that is my supposition. Like most, most people probably don't need to worry about it.
0: The studies in older adults, do you happen to know if they were uh, untrained at the time of the study? I think they were. Because, you know, like we talked about, we do expect, you know, systemic inflammation to go up with age, regular engage, you know, regularly engaging in exercise and physical activity can attenuate that age related increase in inflammation, but is unlikely to blunt it fully. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Yes. Okay. So, uh, to play us out, uh, I'm going to keep this very brief. I'm going to close with simply a warning. Um, there is A misconception you know people talk about fat bear week as if it's you know cute and fun um but there are potentially real world consequences of fat bear week and i feel like a lot of a lot of podcasts especially in fitness aren't talking about this oh for uh, sure which is why i wanted to bring it up so i saw a tweet uh by bbc their like world account and it was a bear and her crew, they were on the prowl in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And the bear was Grizzly three nine nine. And uh, as many people know, she's her tagline is she's the most famous brown bear mother in the world. Uh, she's a seven footer, uh, seven feet tall, uh, very formidable bear. She's had twenty cubs and grand cubs in her life. And she was prowling through Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I'm not an expert in bear behavior, but it looked like she was there with a purpose. And I do suspect that there are two things kind of under her skin. First of all, she is sick of getting completely overlooked during Fat Bear Week. Second, I think she's sick of not having a real name. You know, like we talked about in Fat Bear Week, half the bracket was just a three digit number grizzly 399 grizzly is not a name it needs to be like you know samantha 399 we need we need a name to go with that three digit number and she seemed pissed you know so she can't she brought her whole crew she was going through jackson hole wyoming um and i don't know what she was trying to do i don't know if it was just intimidation i don't know if she was looking for the uh the county board of elections to kind of you know let people know that she knows what's going on with the votes um but anyway She could have been going to try to actually officially change her name, try to find the county office for that. I'm not sure. But uh, it looked like she meant business in this case. They were able to talk her down and to get her to peacefully return home and leave the city, which is good. Uh, No one harmed in the process. But in order to just kind of stifle this and keep the peace, I would urge everyone uh, to support a write-in campaign next year in Fat Bear Week. I, I don't. For, I don't think that's allowed for Grizzly Three Nine Nine. Well, it the postal service will deliver your letters. You can still write it in.
1: I mean, so I consider myself something of a constitutional scholar, and uh, <laughs> one of one of the one of the clauses in the. Uh, in whatever article is about the executive branch that goes overlooked is that, uh, the official fat bear is, is a duly elected position. And, um, the, the thing is you can only be elected within the nature preserve that you were born in. Oh. You, you have to be a natural born citizen. You can't be a naturalized citizen and you certainly can't be, you can't be a foreigner and run for, official fat, fat, bear. fat bear yeah and so that's all going down at the katmai preserve in, in alaska, alaska yeah which is notably not in wyoming Correct. so you know i, I think our, our i think the framers of the constitution knew what they were doing they wanted to make sure that we didn't have foreign bears from wyoming from wyoming sullying the national office in Alaska, which was uh, a very integral part of the country in 1776. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you're, if, if you're trying to get someone on the case to overturn this, like you're, you're going to, you're going to need to appeal it all the way up to the Supreme court and and you're going to need to get some intense judicial activism to completely rewrite the constitution from the bench. Uh, so I mean, good luck with that.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing I know for certain is that we're not going to completely move on from this and forget about it until fat bear week next year. I'm sure we're (laughs) going to have, uh, more updates about this, but that does it for this episode of the stronger by science podcast. As always, thank you for joining us. And one last reminder, uh, November 22nd through November 29th. We've got our big annual Black Friday sale for Mass. If you're not sure yet, if you want to check it out, you can look at the best of issue, uh, which is a free PDF. You can get an idea of what the Mass Research Review is all about. So thanks, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.